0: get access to exclusive content and
1: become part of the team you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek fm that's patreo dot com slash trek hey
0: everyone i'm rod roddenberry and you're listening to trek fm
2: these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks our dedicated books and comic show and i'm one of the hosts matthew rushing and with me as he is always
1: is dan gunther well i'm the other host dan gunther uh how's it going matthew
2: it's going well oh wait that's not your brother dan gunther and uh, your other brother dan
1: <laughs> no <laughs> no 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 uh no 80s 90s sitcoms flashbacks for me here just uh, okay. just me myself oh and I
2: Oh okay uh <laughs> I must have I must have just seen double there for a second so only one Dan Gunther with us tonight cuz there is only one and um well Dan we we got some exciting news actually out of Comic-Con um about some of the things they're going to be doing at IDW to celebrate Well, the 50th anniversary of uh, Star Trek, as well as the 50th issue celebration.
1: Yeah, Matthew, this is pretty cool. Did you know that, uh, well, this October we're getting the release of the 50th uh, issue of the Star Trek ongoing series. Did you know that makes it one of the longest running Star Trek comic series by any publisher?
2: I didn't know that until I read this. And that's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: That's, that's really crazy to think about. You think about how many, you know, Star Trek series there have been, you know, DC and, you know, Marvel had the title for a while. Uh, it's really cool to see this series kind of blazing its own path and and really becoming a force in the Star Trek comic uh, canon, really.
2: Well, and you know, I think personally that it, it's just, one, it's been pretty good comic, and two... Uh, We only get a new J.J. movie every few years and this is the only place to kind of see those characters progress and kind of grow and change a little bit uh, before we get that new film to come out. And so I think that might be one of the reasons that it's continued on so long is we've really just had so many years between each of the movies. (laughs) Um, They keep putting out the comics so that fans have something from the J.J. verse.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's definitely very true. Uh, well, this, this 50th issue is going to kick off an epic three-part adventure uh, that will introduce the classic Mirror Mirror storyline into the new film-based universe. And what's really cool is this issue will also boast additional bonus content, including behind-the-scenes looks at the entire 50-issue run, along with hints about where the series is going from here. And uh, also, it's going to have a really cool wraparound cover by series artist Tony Shasteen. So, definitely looking forward to checking that one out.
2: That is is pretty exciting. I think that this might be a comic that I actually go to the comic book store and pick up a copy of mm-hmm. to have um, with all this bonus material that's going to be in there. I think this is really cool. I'm excited to see them you know, making a big deal out of something with Star Trek. I mean, I just feel like... Um, as we're moving towards the 50th anniversary, I mean, I know a new film is coming out, Star Trek Beyond, that's really exciting. We had the big announcement of you could be on Star Trek if you donate money, uh, the new film, that's great. But nothing else I feel like has really been made, a just a big deal. We're not going to get Blu-ray releases or anything awesome uh, like that, so this is one of the first things I've seen like, hey, let's celebrate something Star Trek.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's an event. You know, the 50th anniversary of Star Trek is only going to happen once. And uh, yeah, the more cool stuff that we get, the more cool releases and and celebrations of this milestone, I think the better. So, you know, it's good to see IDW kind of pulling out the stops and, and giving us something really interesting here.
2: Well, and the next thing, too, that they announce is that in December, they're going to add an, a completely new dynamic to the uh, JJ Verse comics, and they're going to be doing Star Trek Starfleet Academy, which is following all of these characters, which, you know, we saw a little bit of that in O Nine, which was so much fun. I think uh, the Academy kids, but um, I'm really interested to kind of see how these kids grew up and 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 they said this idea of uh, the past and the present collide when a mystery bridges the two timelines, you know, um, So that's gonna be interesting as well, how all of this just kind of plays out. Um, and I yeah, getting to know the background of these characters here, we've had a little bit of that in the comic series. Um, they did that for each of them, kind of at the beginning, kind of telling some backstory. Um, But seeing more in-depth through an entire comic devoted to their Starfleet Academy years, I'm all for it. Mm -hmm.
1: And also the added element of having the, you know, all-new cast of current-day Starfleet cadets as well uh, gives some interesting uh, dynamics to bring into play here. Uh, Looking at the cover, there's a, you know, couple like an alien cadet that we've never seen before, a female Vulcan, uh, a couple humans, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing, you know, how these new characters, uh, interact and, and work together. I'm kind of thinking of Marvel's Starfleet Academy series where they introduced a whole bunch of new characters alongside Nog and, you know, that was great, you know, so these, uh, original characters can sometimes be really interesting. So I'm eager to see where this goes.
2: Well it's nice to see um, some fun things coming for us in the comics to be looking at. I mean we both really enjoyed so far the issue that we had the Green Lantern Star Trek crossover and uh, we've been enjoying for the most part the new visions but uh, I love seeing that this comic series that is introduced is is another comic you know it's not a photo comic like John Byrne's been doing and Um, I I like the subject matter. I think it's going to be really interesting. So we'll definitely put a link there in the show notes to this so you can take a look at some of those things. And I'm super excited, Dan, because we get to jump in now and talk to David R. George III about Sacraments of Fire. Excellent. Dan, I I think that you will agree with me that probably the biggest joy of doing literary treks is the fact that we get to have so many of the authors on the show. And I've got to say thank you to them, first of all, just because they are so generous with their time to come on and and talk about these books. And um, these guys are fans just like us, and they love talking Star Trek so it's so great to be able to welcome David R. George III back to the show hey David
0: hey thanks for having me glad to be back
1: hi David always always a thrill to talk to the authors and uh, great to have you on
0: I had fun talking to the authors, too. It was a Comic-Con this past weekend and (laughs) got to visit with some of my old cronies, so that was a lot of fun.
1: That's nice. Uh,
2: Before we get into it, uh, you know, just a huge geek of everything, uh, was there anything specific that stood out for you at uh, Comic-Con that you really enjoyed, um, you know, announcement-wise or any panels you got to see or anything like that?
0: Comic-Con is sort of—I've taken a a kind of a— kamikaze approach to comic-con in the last couple of years uh, i don't know how many times i've been six seven eight times i'm not sure how many now but the last few years i've found that the least painful way to go because it can be a great deal of of effort In, in i live in los angeles oh, yeah. uh and uh, comic-con is down in san diego driving there working your way around in a car uh finding parking the expense of it staying in hotels it can be an enormous undertaking, and so the last couple of years, I get on a train early on Saturday morning, take the train down to San Diego, get off, walk to the convention, spend the day there, and then pop home that night, back on the train. So uh, that's nice. The one thing about that is, you know, I don't get to experience everything, all the panels and all. I I've, I go to mostly to see uh, friends who are a lot of the Star Trek writers. This year I had a book come out, which is one of the reasons we're here, just a couple of weeks ago. So I was doing a book signing. So there was nothing in particular. It was just good for me to be able to see Kevin Dilmore and Andy Mangles and, and, and Marco Palmieri and people like that and get to visit with them. That was that's mostly what Comic-Con has turned into for me.
2: That's fun, though, uh, that you get to have that reunion at least once a year. Yeah, with it's those nice, guys, especially so. with
0: uh, you know people like uh, and Kevin is, and and Andy and Marco, or you know, for example, just scattered all over the country from here. So um, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't get to see them all that often. So that was a lot of fun.
1: That's very cool. It almost, almost feels like there's kind of a brotherhood of Star Trek writers, and the fact that you guys are all friends. That's that's really cool.
0: I absolutely. Oh, I don't know. We're all friends, but certainly we all well, kind of know each other, and a lot of us are friends, uh, and not just a brotherhood, a sisterhood too. Um, Kirsten Buyer, um, you know, it's uh, and and I think one of the things that binds us obviously is that we write Star Trek novels, but also we're Star Trek fans, so we start there with that base, uh, and so you know we have a lot to talk about, and it's sort of interesting to be able to celebrate and commiserate and, you know, just understand what each of us have been through, you know, because we go through the same process. So, yeah, um, yeah it's great. I I have a great deal of respect for all of these people and uh, a great deal of affection for them as well. So, it, you know, as I say, Comic-Con has become sort of a, just a reunion for me, and that's really nice.
2: Well, as you said, we are here to talk about uh, Sacraments of Fire, which just came out, and This book, you in Revelations in Dust, we we talked back when that book had come out, and you were kind of bringing in uh, some elements, um, some ideas, it felt like, uh, from some of the things that had happened all the way back in 2001, and all the way through what had happened in Soul Key in 2009, uh, and then the Deep Space Nine story kind of stopped, and they've allowed you now to kind of go back and tell the story that they had been setting up with the Ascendance Arc. Uh, Talk about, for you, the process of of crafting this story when you are really in some ways having to stitch together the quilt that has become, you know, the Star Trek quote-unquote book canon
0: that we have these days. Well, that's, Sort of a, an interesting way to put it, uh, a compelling way to put it, I think, because there are a lot of patches in the patchwork. There are a lot of uh, a lot of yes. different pieces <laughs> to try and weave together. Um, I, Deep Space Nine, among all the Star Trek series, is the one that really, over time, and I'm talking about now on the television series, not just in the books, changed the most. You know, you start with yeah. Dr. Bashir as as this naive, wet-behind-the-ears graduate out of Starfleet Academy who's uh, looking for high adventure and really doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, nope, turns out he's a genetically engineered super genius. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I mean, change was the hallmark of the show. Uh, and, I mean, it did that from the very beginning up until the very end. I mean, at the, at the last episode, we saw Odo leave the station, Cisco left the station uh, for the Celestial Temple. We saw Worf become ambassador to the Klingon Empire. O'Brien went back to Earth. So all our characters are scattered to the wind. And when the, the books started to pick up the story, I think one of the things that the editors strived to do was to Im- keep uh, embodying that uh, element of change that that deep space nine always had and so we didn't just automatically bring all the characters back and make everything sort of status quo again because there was no status quo in deep space nine we went with it we invented new characters we still visited with the old characters who had left the station we certainly had some of the old characters on the station you know we just we we tried to continue the story in a way that had the series not stopped on television it might have gone on television. You know, we wanted yeah. that element of change to keep being a, a, a big part of everything. But at the same time, there were lots of elements in the show that never really paid off. I mean, Bejor never joined the Federation in the television
1: series. <laughs> True. <laughs>
0: Cisco didn't come back from the Celestial Tempo. O- Odo didn't come back from the Dominion. We didn't see if Odo was able to change the Dominion. All of these d- disparate elements. And so, over time, as we ha- we added to the the literary Deep Space Nine. Uh, we tried to, and certainly is not just me by any stretch. Lots of other editors and writers who uh, have uh, done a great deal for the Deep Space Nine books. Um, you know, they they tried to to follow up on some of those things and create new storylines that, again, moved forward. And so, in some books, there would be. New elements that would arise, uh, new plots, but they wouldn't necessarily be paid off in that book. certainly, most of the books have stories that begin and and end in in the book, but there are still added elements that continue forward, and one of those, of course, was the ascendants and uh, what was the question? <laughs> 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 I'm not you're, even sure I'm answering the question now. I don't even remember no, what the question was. I've
2: been talking so long. <laughs> you're starting off well. I think um, stitching together what we had ah, had right. with, you know, the Ascendant starting and, 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 you know, we're kind of left in soul key. Right. Um, and then, so, of course, you know, we've jumped so far now into the Deep Space Nine story and and things have changed radically. So putting that all together...
0: Right, and, and so, yeah, the Ascendants the were one of these plots that that the writers and editors had started to set up in the books, and it was just set up. There was an appearance in Rising Sun by S.D. Perry that had uh, a, uh, the one lone Ascendant appear and then ha- interacted with Kai Opaka, and uh, then we saw in, in uh, The Soul Key that, that Ileana Gamore had been restored to her Cardassian her, her self, still mad, uh, I mean insane, um, and leading uh, you, know, about to lead the ascendance, apparently. And uh, but these were just sort of uh, elements uh, of the ascendance. The, the plot had been set up, but there wasn't necessarily a particular plan going forward. We just knew that we were going to, you know this was a story we were going to take, take on. But then with the Typhon Pact books, we wanted to move Deep Space Nine. In order for Deep Space Nine to be a part of that, it needed to be the storyline needed to be moved forward to
1: right. be
0: contemporary with with the with Next Generation essentially. And so mm. we did that. We leaped the story ahead four years between the Soul Key and the next book, which was actually Zero Sum Game uh, by mm-hmm. David yep. Mack, and then um, my book Rough Piece of Empire, my Typhon Pack book, which actually takes place prior to zero sum game but it was the second book in the series so um that was you know we we leap four years ahead and i had a choice at that point because m- my story took place uh with cisco and so there are a lot of deep space nine elements on, in it uh do i just figure out what happened with the ascendance and and tell people what it was that didn't seem very satisfying i didn't think that would uh, that was sort of honest or or uh, a good way to capture the imaginations of the readers. Um, I could say that it was still going on, but that seemed unlikely to me. In, in the Soul Key, we see at the very end, Ileana Gamore arriving to lead the Ascendants. It doesn't seem like it would take her four years to lead them to whatever <laughs> was going to yeah. happen. So that didn't seem right. So instead, I, I chose to let it be known that Whatever had happened with the ascendants had been resolved, but we—I did, I didn't let it be known exactly how. Uh, but I did give some hints about it. We saw an ascendant with Kira, somebody at peace, and somebody who apparently um, revered Kira, uh, perhaps. So I, you know, I just—I g- gave some little hints, and I had an idea if i was going to move the story forward of where i might go with it but there was no guarantee that i was going to be the one to do that there are plenty of very good star trek writers and any one of those could have been chosen to move the story forward and then they would have had to try and figure out how to stitch the various pieces together but uh, it turned out to be me so it helped me that i uh, was the one to create some of those pieces but i also you know i had elements by uh... you know david Mack and and sd perry uh, that I had to try and stitch together and hopefully come up with a compelling story for everybody.
1: Well, I I really think that, like, it's kind of, I love how you had Kira kind of go back and become a part in those events, because it almost made it seem like that was kind of planned, almost like the story jumped forward specifically, so the story could be told this way. Uh, and it feels kind of uh, an interestingly organic way to do it, if that makes sense.
0: It absolutely does, and yeah, I meant to do that, <laughs> if only. Um, you know, trying to figure out how to tell the story of the Ascendants in the past, I could have could have just set an entire story in the past. Um, but, you know, we talked with my editor, uh, Margaret Clark, and she was really pretty committed to continuing the story forward in the quote-unquote current time frame, which is roughly 2385, 2386. Um, she wanted to keep moving the story forward there, and, and I agreed with her. And so, you know, I figured out this way to tell the story because I really, for a long time now, I've wanted to tell the Ascendant story. And I had some elements in my head about what that might be if I was going to be the one to tell it. Uh, and other things I still had to figure out, but I, 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 I took some elements uh, from the Star Trek novels going back well past The Soul Key and, and even back past Rising Sun, the elements from long ago, and tried to you know weave those together. I, I'm glad that it feels organic because that uh, was obviously the, the, the goal, to make this feel like it was a natural way to tell the story.
2: With everything kind of coming together um, for you, uh, I was kind of wondering uh, – what did you decide and how did you decide okay how how much do I tell in this book and then how much do I tell in the upcoming book uh, Ascendant so you have very much a um, the uh, duology here how do were you able to kinda figure out okay what do I need to put in this book and then what needs to come in the next one
0: well um, that's an interesting question Um, and and the way that happens is sort of organic it happened with the, my previous two-book series, which was Plagues of Night and Raise the Dawn. Um, and and um, it sort of became – when I started trying to figure out the, the Ascendant story, it sort of became clear that it was going to be something that was going to take more than 125,000 words or 130,000 words, and um, so it was probably going to be more than one book at the same time you want to tell a story that is complete in itself even if it has elements that are going to continue in future books you still want to be able to tell a complete story i mean a revelation and dust i set up a lot of stuff for deep space nine going forward i set up stuff for the, the the entire fall uh series but i also wanted to tell a complete story and I felt that I did with, and that's not the story that a lot of people expected. It was a story of Kira Noris living a life in Bajor's past, but that was the story I chose to tell in that book. In Sacraments of Fire, there is a very uh, strong story for the first officer of, of Deep Space Nine, Sandeska, a Bajoran, and he deals with um, some revelations about... Possible revelations about the Bajoran religion, Um, and that goes back to to uh, the the sect that we've seen in the past, the Ohalavaru, which uh, the 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 Bajoran uh, Ohalu, the 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 Bajoran from the past, whose writings indicated that he thought the prophets were not gods, but simply advanced aliens, and that you know Kira was attainted because she. Uh, posted the Ohalu text to the Bajaran Comnet and all of that. That whole story um, plays a significant role in Sacraments of Fire. And and really, I guess because the Ascendants uh, have been portrayed early on as very distinctly religious, I mean ex- religious extremists, um, it made sense to me to try and put together a story that... that um I don't know it, it, it that dealt with faith i guess on, on uh, and lack of faith on different levels i mean the the uh, the ascendants are religious zealots, but you wouldn't describe them as nice people right <laughs> but you don't want you don't wanna say that all religious people are not nice people so you've got you you've got i try and look at all aspects of faith or a lack of faith, maybe not all aspects but different aspects of of faith and a lack of faith in in sacraments of fire.
1: Well, that brings us to kind of another point here is in this book, you do present a lot of different faces of faith. Uh, for example, like you said, Sen, whose, you know, faith seems to almost be shattered by what looks to be a pretty major discovery about his religion. Uh, and on kind of the other side, you've got Kira, whose experience with the prophets is you know, does nothing more than strengthen her belief and make her more sure in her convictions. And I even look at a character like Tyranitar, who, you know, is kind of another character who's lost his belief, but has kind of gone in a different direction, uh, kind of freed him to chart his own path and becoming really loyal to Kira in a way that's not forced like his loyalty to the founders, but kind of earned, um, what was your experience in writing about belief from so many differing perspectives?
0: Well, I made me think about a lot about that stuff a lot um, because I did want to examine it from different angles. Uh, Tyrannatar is, is really to me an interesting case, actually. Kira is too. When you think about it, it's a little different talking about Tyranitar's faith because his gods. I mean, when he believed in them, which was for the huge majority of his life, were demonstrably real. Mm-hmm. And you could even argue that they truly are his gods, since they really created his people. If they didn't create them out of nothing, they certainly genetically engineered them from existing uh, beings or, or parts. I, I don't think that that's been exactly uh, truly identified, but clearly the the... The founders at a hand in creating the Jemhadar as we know them, so his gods are demonstrably real Kira's gods are demonstrably real beings, so that's a little bit different than somebody believing in in christ or 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 other gods and not actually having you know evidentiary experience of them um. Which, which makes it a bit different to talk about. I mean, how do you lose faith um, in, in a being that is demonstrably real? Well, you start to question their their characteristics, their makeup. And really for Sandeska, the Bajoran who has a crisis of faith, um, it has to do with, with exactly that. I mean, he, he, he knows these beings exist, he reveres them, but then he starts to wonder if maybe, you know, these are not gods, that they're just advanced beings, because there's certainly advanced beings out there in the galaxy. He believes in those. He knows that those exist. So, um, you know, it was interesting, too, when you talk about Tyranitar and his his faith in Kira, his loyalty to Kira that was earned and not forced the way the founders sort of forced him to be loyal. Um, I think that's... Mostly right. But he's sort of wired not sort of, he was wired to revere the founders as gods, to give absolute mm, yeah. mm-hmm. fealty to the founders. And when he discovered that they were not gods by their own admission, you know, it shattered him, but he's still sort of wired to to find something to believe in. And so, you know, it, it ends up in Sacraments of Fire, that he kind of unexpectedly, you know, encounters Kira again and sort of, you know, he, he gives his faith essentially to her. And part of that is because she has earned it. He, she may not be the fiercest warrior or, or you know, any number of other things that, that he would maybe choose her to be, but she's demonstrated loyalty and courage and some other things that, that mean something to him. So that was, that was, for me, just a great dynamic, the Kira and Tyranitar. I've always enjoyed the character of Tyranitar, and the danger of writing him, certainly initially, uh, and even in the first, I don't know, however many books that, that he was in, is to to start changing him, to start making him not a Gemhadar but a human. And you don't really want to do that. You just want to make him grow but grow as a gem hadar i have the same sort of attitude about quark i think quark can grow and mature but he can't become human he's got to become a more mature ferengi it's a maybe a, a subtle distinction but i think it's an important distinction um and of course you know having these different races with different characteristics allows us to shine a light on our own human foibles and failings
2: Well, it was really interesting you know especially this whole, you know, the character of Sin and what they discover there on the Bajoran moon, it really did remind, you know, we we had in Revelations and Dust your Archduke Ferdinand moment, uh, that kind of historical piece that just really moved the story forward. For me, I really saw this kind of revelation for the Bajoran people as as something that's like a Bajoran-Copernican revolution um, that... You know the the Church of Bajor is having to deal with, and you know, um, I love the way the Kai is dealing with it, saying we have to tell the people this. you know we we can't if I keep it under wraps, it's just going to be even worse. So it was just such an interesting thing to see, you know, how does faith deal with something that may or may not seem like it could shatter it from the outset?
0: Yeah, you know, I think that's a really interesting observation. I certainly didn't have the Copernican Revolution distinctly in mind, but um, I, I say that's a great observation. Um, you know, I mean, certainly the the crisis of faith is – we see it in, in Sanduska. We don't see the rest of the Bajoran society and how they're dealing with it, although we do know that there's – they're sort of in crisis. They're, they're, you know, this is not something that's not going to have an impact. But the question is, what is it that, for question for me to ask, um, that interests me is what is it that, that will get somebody to lose faith? Um, or, and lose faith is maybe the wrong term too. Maybe it's not a question of losing faith so much as coming to understand that maybe you're not right. Um, I mean, I think a problem in in modern society on, here on Earth is that people choose to believe things regardless of facts to the contrary. You know, people ha- get ensconced in believing not just religious things, but political things, or or just everyday personal things. And then, if they get evidence to the contrary, they they choose to ignore it and they still believe what is not really true you know in science if facts do not conform to the theory then the theory must be disposed of but sometimes in modern life if facts don't conform to the theory people get rid of the facts and so you know i mean that's a, perhaps a little bit of uh, an obtuse way of looking at this major religious crisis but that's something that i wanted to explore and uh and I, and I also was not interested in saying these people are right, these people are wrong. Um, there are plenty of people who believe, there, there are very many religious people on earth right now who are very good people, who help people. There are atheists on earth who are good people and help people. You know, you, you don't have to be religious or not religious to still be, uh, you know, a, a human being contributing to society. So, uh, I don't know. I wanted to look at all of these things and try and, you know, I had to figure out a way to contextualize that in, in the Deep Space Nine universe.
2: Which is so nice. I mean, I think that's one of the strengths in, in uh, Christopher Jones and I on The Orb, you know, that's our Deep Space Nine show here on the network. We talk about that a lot, you know, that you know, Deep Space Nine was the first Star Trek to really kind of deal honestly with religious questions and, and not just downplay religion, um, as it, it being something we need to correct, you know, um, but to say, this is a valid form of, of life, you know, and, um, we might not know the answers. And so that kind of mystery and ambiguity in that was so nice to see in a, in a Star Trek show. And I think for me, as somebody who is a person of faith, it's one of the things that really led me to liking Deep Space Nine more than the other series because it actually reflected my life in that universe for the first time in a way that didn't make me feel like an idiot, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, yeah, uh, I, I, I get that. Um, you know, no matter what, I think it's always important, and Star Trek, I think, really epitomizes this, uh, it's really important to treat everybody with kindness and respect i mean there's no reason not to Definitely. and one of the great things about star trek and for me the most important thing about star trek e- even when i was starting to watch it as a child i i had some sense of this is that star trek represents an inclusiveness that i just find compelling and important and the best of all possible worlds i mean everybody deserves a seat at the table You know, it doesn't matter if you're black or white or blue or green. It doesn't matter, you know, your religious beliefs, your lack of belief. None of that matters. Man, woman, other. It doesn't matter. Everybody everybody deserves a chance. And uh, I think that's really important. I think that's one of the reasons that Star Trek has endured, is that it has that message of positivity and that essentially goal for humanity is that, you know, we're all we're all in this together. So I'm happy to see you know I'm happy that message is reflected in in my writing because it's chief among my positive aspects of Star Trek.
1: Well, that kind of reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in this novel, and that was actually when uh, when Deska is kind of having his crisis of faith, and it's really Roe who is kind of the one to talk him through it a little bit and console him and say, you know, if you need to talk, I'm here. And it was kind of just an interesting reversal almost, Um, you know, kind of the person who is seen by a lot of people as being an unbeliever or faithless and kind of almost feeling sorry for her because of that, to have that kind of turned around and have her consoling Sen because his you know, his beliefs have kind of been shattered and not, you know, rubbing his face in it or something like that, but just saying, you know, I'm a friend and, and I, I know what it's like and I'm here for you. I thought that was just a great scene.
0: Oh, I, um, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad you liked it. I, I that that to me is an important scene. Um, you know, Ro herself, you know, wearing her, her earring on the on the on the quote unquote wrong ear, you know, so that uh, the, the vedics and the kai can't uh, feel her paw through her ear. Uh, and, you know, she's de- kind of demonstrated that she's a nonbeliever. I, I don't. I, I think she's even said it outright. And I kind of soften her a little bit on this because it also Rose strikes me as the type of person who, uh, you know, don't don't put labels on me. You know that 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 seems to me who who Ro is. She wants to be who she is, and it doesn't matter what you call her. And um, but you know, I, I also feel that she's. I think she's matured um, o- over the course of the books. I mean, she's Definitely. in command now, um, and you know, clearly with that responsibility, she's she's got to you know, consider all the people in her command. And I think that just gives her a, 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 a more, perhaps, um, not more discerning outlook on everybody, but a, certainly a, um, a dedicated outlook. She wants, to, And these people are not just her colleagues. They're also her friends, not, perhaps not all of them, but you know, certainly her first officer, you can imagine having a close relationship. And, and, uh, and you know what? Even if they weren't friends, who wants to see somebody go through that? You know, if you're, even if you're a non-believer, you can understand how somebody losing their faith in in their religious belief would be a terrible blow to them.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it would, it's,
0: you know, it's almost like, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a little bit different, but it's sort of analogous where you can understand, even if you're not married, you can understand uh, somebody who is married whose spouse cheats on them. You can understand that betrayal. Even if you're not in a marriage yourself. And so I don't think Roe needed to be a believer in order to understand, in order to see the pain that Sen was experiencing. And, of course, you know, she's she's going to offer a shoulder. that's that's who she is as a, a commanding officer. That's who she is as a friend.
2: I want to further that just a little bit and ask you about the character of Roe more specifically and how, she has changed. I mean, she used to be a rebel without a cause and then she became a rebel with a cause. And now in this book, she has become the one with responsibility, you know, the one, um, who is seeing that side of leadership in a way I don't think she'd ever thought she'd feel, um, maybe even understanding a Picard or an Eckhart or any of those characters that she used to kind of buff up against all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was really fascinating to watch, a character turn like that, and uh, it's been so organic.
0: I, I hope so. I wanted it to be organic. Um, I'm not the only one who's written her, but you know, I think we've all tried to to make it that way because, yeah, you wouldn't uh, on, on at our first meeting with Row or through the series or even in the first books. So she's not the kind of person you would necessarily think of in command. Although, I would suggest that. She has a strong personality. That A leader really needs a strong personality. She has uh, uh, confidence, also something very important. Um, and she has a, a sense of right and wrong. Now, that's gotten her into trouble in the past, but it's still an important component of who she is, and it's something I think you need in order to lead people. And, you know, she betrayed Jean-Luc Picard and, and, the, and the crew of the Enterprise – and he forgave her because he understood, I think, that uh, the reasons behind her doing what she was doing. And even though he disagreed with her, he also could see the value in in her going to fight with the monkey, going to defend them. So, And he he forgave her. And that, I think that really is sort of a, a critical moment in Rose's life, certainly in her career, because it gives her – Definitely, The confidence to, I mean, he, he Picard actually, he forgave her, but he also on two different occasions encouraged her to keep moving forward, to stay on Deep Space Nine initially when she was in the Bajoran militia, and then ultimately when Bajor joined the Federation to join, to make the decision to not leave the station uh, a second time, not don't leave the station, and, and this time join Starfleet. I mean, those were essentially her choices. She was going to stay on the station. She would have had to join Starfleet again. And, uh, of course, she did run into some opposition from Aka R and others, but, you know, Picard was her champion. And him showing that confidence in her, that faith in her, if you will, um, I think really is that's just something that had an impact on her. Um, and when you're thrust into a position of responsibility, and initially she was chief of security, but then first officer under, under Vaughn. When you are thrust into that role, I I think if you're going to succeed at it, you have to take it on very seriously and, and dedicate yourself to it. And she's certainly done that. I don't think she's any less of a She has any less of a sense of right and wrong than she did. uh, I think that under the right circumstances, she would disobey orders if, if, if that, came up uh, because she's done that before and but I think she would before she did that I think she would take a more measured look at what it would mean for her to disobey those orders because they think she's a more yeah. mature person but she's not entirely a different person anyway that's no, how I definitely look at not. Um I, I really I love the character Earl and I really enjoy writing her
2: well and there is that great piece of the book where she is talking to Prin, and Prin comes away with the thought of that Rose still might have had a plan in place to help you know Bashir that she didn't know about you know so there's still the question of just how much of a rebel is still left right Uh, but she's also doing the right thing as a commanding officer with her you know subordinate of uh, reprimanding her when she needs to be reprimanded and and um, teaching her the, the lesson she needs to be taught, uh, but at the same time, I think just she's being a good role model for somebody like print So that was a that's a nice thing. It's like you, you're still leaving the door open for those bits of Row that um, you know might come out sure. again if, if need be.
0: Yeah, she does. Uh, yeah, Row absolutely does not simply reprimand Prin. She 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 expands on on what's happened and and yeah it does leave the door open i didn't write um the scenes to which i referred where prince sabotaged um defiance in order to help bashir make his escape um, dave Mack did uh in his uh, uh his fall book uh, a ceremony of losses but one thing dave did in there was when when um uh, Bashir was going to be escorted back to Deep Space Nine. He had Dave had she, he had Roe have Serena Douglas escort him back to the mm-hmm. shuttlecraft or to the to the uh, runabout. Um, I mean that was Roe's order for Serena Douglas to. Uh, Serena Douglas is Bashir's soulmate. So right, you have to think <laughs> why is Roe doing this? Because in fact serena and julian then did collude to have him escape and it you know they made it look like he overpowered her and in fact he does punch her but you know with her completely willing to go along with it because she wants serena wants him to get away but Rose is not stupid and she's the one who put them in this situation so you have to think where is her heart at you know she's is she she's not defying rose not defying orders but she's making sure that Bashir gets away. Really, you could make that argument. And I I, I kind of think that's where Ro's head was at, that she knew Bashir was trying to do something very important in saving the Andorian people, and she wanted to give him every opportunity to do it. That's how I read those scenes. So, um, yeah, Rose Ro still is, is sort of, like I say, a rebel with a cause. Um, I mean, she's been a rebel with a cause, but she's now... Fitting herself into a command hierarchy, and and she's a leader, and that that changes her. But she's still um, she's what made her a rebel initially, without a cause, and then with a cause is a sense of right and wrong, and that hasn't changed mm-hmm. for her.
1: Yeah, definitely not. Um, one thing I noticed, kind of speaking about Roe and and her, you know, cause, and that sort of thing. Uh, one thing that kind of comes up in this novel a lot is. The idea of a life of purpose Uh, through Roe and characters like Sisko and Tyranitar, they both seem to be looking for and finding purpose in their lives. Uh, Specifically with Sisko, it's interesting to see how kind of new inspirations can come along in his life and reinvigorate a person. So I was wondering if you can tell us a bit about how you came to this place for Cisco. Uh, you know, especially since he was such a force in the show. Since you've been playing the long game with him since Rough Beasts, Beasts of Empire.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think a sense of purpose. I think it's important in life, and it's certainly important in in uh, in fiction. Uh, your, your characters have to have motivations, consistent motivations, reasonable motivations, believable motivations. Compelling motivations. And, uh, you know, I was, when I wrote Rough Beasts of Empire, which was the, um, actually the second of the Typhon Pact books, although chronologically I think it's the first. Um, in order to, to bring, to have Deep Space Nine be a part of that Typhon Pact series, we needed to bring Deep Space Nine forward, uh, ultimately four years, uh, in order to align it with, next generation so that you know we could be part of of that story. so um, I was asked to do that and I was asked also to to get Cisco back into Starfleet and off of Bajor because that's where he was he when he came back in unity from the celestial temple uh, he he just he didn't rejoin Starfleet he just went back to Bajor So I was given the task of getting him back into Starfleet. and I thought well how am I going to do that And it just seemed very... Uh, unsatisfying to just have him say, "Well, you know, I want to go back to Starfleet now, um, and you know, maybe try and return him to this station." We, we, this is this is stuff we've seen before. What what is it that was going to compel him to go back to Deep Space Nine? I mean, yeah, he's got friends there, but what's he going to do? Is he going to displace Kira? By the time he comes back, she's been in command for for nine months, and and at the, t- at the end of the series of books. Um, before Ruppies of Empire*, which ended with the Soul Key, it's it's twenty three uh, seventy eight, I guess. So Kira's been in command, or twenty three seventy seven. Sorry, uh, she's been in com- com- command for a year. So in order for Cisco to go back to command, *Deep 69 9 Kira's got to be displaced. It doesn't seem like something that he would want to do to her, uh, to, to have her demoted or or have her become a captain somewhere else. Um, so I don't know. I was just looking around for what was believable and dramatic, and I was I, I came to the, the – uh, I went back to the series to one of the many things that, that just never paid off, was never paid off in the series, and that was the prophets telling Cisco that if he spent the rest of his life with Cassidy – he would know nothing but sorrow. That never really paid off in the series, not 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 even not really. It didn't pay off in the series, and it didn't pay off in the books either. And so I used that to formulate the story that I came up with and, and gave Sisko um, a reason to go back to Starfleet. In this case, it was sort of, it was, um, people would say, abandoning his family. And, and you know, what, where, where else does he know besides family? Starfleet course he wasn't abandoning his family he was leaving them because he felt that if he stayed they would die to me that's heroic if i had a choice if i knew my if i stayed with my wife she was going to die tomorrow i would get the hell out of here that's that's just i I would have no choice (laughs) Uh, um, even though it's not what i would want to do i feel like it's what i would have to do so cisco did that now okay he's back in starfleet he can still be the emissary right but We saw that story played out over Deep Space Nine, the television series, and we saw it played out very well. And it sort of—I don't say ground to a halt—in the books, I mean, he was still looked upon as the emissary. But there weren't a lot of storylines that really had him and his mystical experiences with the prophets and all of that. And I thought, you know, maybe we've maybe we've played this out. Maybe maybe it's time for us to to have Cisco have another part of his life, some other compulsion, or not a compulsion, because that sounds like a negative thing, but, you know, something motivating him um, to do something else. And, and through the series of books, I, I sort of, for me, it was an organic process, found um, a desire for exploration that he never really had before. I mean, we didn't see it in the television series. From what we know of his backstory on the television series and then in the books, he was an engineer to start with. He, he only reluctantly became a command officer, um, for, you know, he was an exec and then finally became a, a commander and a captain. Um, that's not where he wanted to see his life go when he joined Starfleet, um, but he grew into it and clearly was a terrific commander. I mean, you could argue that he saved not just the Federation, but the Alpha Quadrant from the Dominion. And, uh, you know, it's great, compelling character. But I found, like I said, organically, him moving away from that, moving away from the pro- prophets and his life on Bajor. And because in the books, at least for me, as a writer, there have been a lot of political stories of late, um, I really had a desire, and I, I know some other writers and, and the editors too, um, who wanted to get back to that exploration part of Star Trek, uh, you know, going out and seeking out the unknown. And uh, because Vaughn, Elias Vaughn, was a character that had this, it was easy to see that that could rub off on Cisco. A- and also, then his, uh, you know, I gave him some experiences in the books where he did get to explore and he found out, hey, this is something I'm gravitating toward. This is something that's fulfilling me. And, um, you know, when he rejoined with his family, too, now it's something he can share with them as well. So, um I say for me it's an organic pro- it was an organic process for Cisco. He's sort of starting another leg of his life. And really it's people do that all the time. I mean Cisco himself did that, right? He had, he had a wife and a young son when his wife died. He, now he was aboard a of starship, but they were with him. He was living that life. His life changed when Jennifer died. And he reluctantly stayed on Deep Space Nine. And what sort of really let him do that was his affinity for the Bajoran people, despite some discomfort with his role as their emissary. Um he grew into that role as well. And, you know, so he that's a really wholly different part of his life than was his life with Jake and Jennifer prior to that. Well, I'm saying that after seven years on Deep Space Nine, he went to the Celestial Temple for nine months, or at least nine months from our side of things. Um, and then back to Bajor, and now he's started on another another chapter in his life, a different chapter, but one that, you know, hopefully will be compelling and full of great adventures that people want to read about.
2: Well, this book, I mean, it does have so many plots to it going on and, and lots of different things that we, we talked about. You're kind of...
0: Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. I appreciate it. creating
2: a whole, and was just wondering, you know, balancing all those plots and trying to figure them all out and then of course you know writing this new deep space 9 you know it's it's really not your fault but you know you only have a few characters right now from the main series that are kind of left on the station at the moment Talk about trying to work all that together and and playing with the pieces that you have mm-hmm. left on the chessboard of Deep Space Nine.
0: Well, it's partly my fault, but not entirely my fault. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, we were left at the end of the television series with Cisco gone, Worf gone, Odo gone, O'Brien gone. So, uh, I mean, Jadzia had died the year before. So, you know, a lot of these characters were just gone. Um, now, in the books, several of of now also left. Bashir has gone. As uh, uh, Redax has gone, um, but we have brought some characters back too. I mean, initially in the very first uh, so-called relaunch book, we brought uh, back uh, Lahren from Next Generation, and uh, but in in these most recent books, we've brought back O'Brien, we've brought back Nog. So I mean, we are bringing some familiar faces back, um, and Kira and Cisco, even though they're not stationed on these planets, are still big parts of the storytelling. And, um, you know, we've created new characters as well. And it's, yeah, with so many storylines, it's hard to, um, it's hard to flesh out everybody, um, you can't get it, you know, I don't have a chance to, to completely flesh out everybody, um, but they're, they're very distinct in my mind, and hopefully they're written distinctly so people can get some sort of feel for them. Some of these characters actually go back a ways. The science officer, John Candlewood, actually goes back to Twilight, um, which was maybe 2001 or 2002, so I mean, we're talking about 12, 13 years he's been around. Now, he hasn't had any major storylines, so I mean, that that needs to happen so that we can get to know him. Um, mm-hmm. But some of these characters, I think, are getting are starting to get fleshed out. The security chief on Deep Space Nine, uh, Jefferson Blackmer, is he's had some pretty significant storylines. So we're getting to know him, um, and hopefully, you know, we'll get to know everybody else. And hopefully, they'll be compelling enough for the readers. I mean, when I wrote Twilight, which was the first of the Mission Gamma books and uh, one of the early Deep Space Nine relaunch works. Um, I had, it, it, it was defiant out in the Gamma Quadrant, and I realized while I was writing the book that at some point I had Elias Vaughn trapped on this planet with Shar, um, uh, 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 the Andorian, and Prin Tenmai, Vaughn's daughter uh and there were, you know, huge tracks of this novel, or is the three of them trapped on this planet, and I realized, oh great, I'm writing this novel and there are no Star Trek characters, no television characters in these scenes. None whatsoever. This is a huge part of this novel. The main focus of this <laughs> novel yeah. has no existing Star Trek characters, television characters. And uh but I you know I it was I thought it was okay because I thought, you know, we're we're this is one way we're getting to know these characters. And hopefully they're compelling characters to the readers. So they're characters that the readers come to, to, to love. And, um, I know that a lot of people came to love Elias Vaughn. I think there are a lot of people out there who love print mm. uh, um,
1: so. yeah, I love both of them. Yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> so, you know, um, I mean, this is, this, this is our job as writers is to make these characters, uh, appealing or not appealing depending on who they are. And, uh, and you want to draw distinct personalities, and, you know, some of that comes out, uh, out with relationships between people you know and them, like, you know, Pryn interacting with Roe. We know Roe. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, Sacraments of Fire is a Sandeska novel, which, you know, I don't necessarily want to say because I, I feel like some people will go, who's Sandeska? <laughs> um, but he's been the first officer on the station for a while, and we really haven't gotten to know him all that well. We've seen bits and pieces of him here and there, and we do know that he's he's very religious and and uh, you know trustworthy and competent and all of that. But I I feel like we get to know him a lot better um, in Sacraments of Fire. So you know we're we're trying to get these characters out there and known to everybody and hopefully appealing
2: to people. Well, and at the same time, you know, I was realizing too in this book we haven't spent a ton of time with the new Deep Space Nine, and so that's another character that we are getting to know. And and for those, you know, we're all those fans, and, and we like having the the blueprints and everything we can look at, and and we don't have that. So this is really an imagination no, of you don't have what that. this I have place that. looks like. <laughs> you
0: yeah, you have it. <laughs> I I, uh, I actually when I was you're absolutely right. Uh, and I didn't really fully appreciate when I blew up deep space nine, how difficult it was going to be to create a new deep space nine. I mean, sort of physically, I mean, I, I work with Doug Drexler and, and, uh, uh, and his team to, to, you know, design the station, but I, I already started sort of designing it from the outside, but now I have to, These are all new areas. It's really interesting because when you write an original series novel or or a next generation novel or Voyager novel or a Deep Space Nine from back in the day, you don't really have to describe The Bridge or Ops or Quarks or whatever because the readers are familiar with those, those sets. They've actually seen them a whole different thing when you're writing an entirely new Starbase. A huge Starbase. And I actually make the... I draw the distinction very clearly. I, I don't think I've done it in since the new Deep Space Nine has been around. I don't refer to it as the station anymore. I always refer to it as the Starbase. Because it's bigger and better. And I wanted... It seems to me, if you're going to replace an old Cardassian or processing station with something in an important area, you're going to... Replace it with state of the art, you know, as impregnable as, as we can possibly be, starbase. And so I've I've wanted to do that. But yes, then all of a sudden now, okay, well, what the what the hell does the control center look like? What is what is the sick bay look like? What is you know all all of these things? Well, what are we going to have on here? And so then I had to even start thinking about okay, let's have some playing fields. Let's have a place where people fly. You know, we we need to have a gigantic park, and let's you know. Where is the, the, um, where's, where's the control center going to be? I actually had this notion that if you're going to have a control center for a star base, it should be at the heart of the star base, as far from danger right. as you could possibly have. You, don't, you, you know, if you're going to build a, a, a starship that could go into battle, you're not going to put the bridge at the top of the saucer section where everybody can shoot at it. You're just not. And if, if you're going to create a star, star base, you're not going to put the control center right out on top where everybody can see it. And so I initially, I, I called the control center the core. And I had it at the very heart of the main sphere of, of the new Deep Space Nine. Except, you know, I talked to Doug Drexler about this, and we had a, uh, a big disagreement about this. a Creative disagreement. and um, And he ultimately convinced me that no. It needs to be on top. It doesn't matter that maybe strategically this is not what you would do. This is who we are. We're the people who are out there putting ourselves on the front line, not scared to engage with people we don't know. We need to be at so okay now it's not the core now it's the hub and I put you know it's the intersection of the of the vertical rings. So um yes anyway I had to just create this news deep space 9 and I it's still being created but probably by not just me but by other writers who uh, well, well certainly Una McCormack just wrote the missing so she had to you know have scenes on deep space 9 and I know Dan Mack has in a ceremony of losses so we're all putting it together and and trying to flesh it out so that it will become that sort of background all pervasive character for the readers mm-hmm. just as the original station
2: was I I honestly I just I hope one day um, you know star trekcom or Star Trek magazine will kind of give us uh, a more in-depth look at the station because I, I personally really love it. I, I think it's a great design. Um, I love the homage to the original, but at the same time, like you said, you can just tell this is one badass space station, <laughs> you know, like this is, this is n- a, nothing to be trifled with. And um, so I love getting to, to hear more about it. Um, but as all fans, I'm like, oh man, I just, I want to see some
1: blueprints.
0: <laughs> you know, I didn't do, I didn't do this. We talked about blueprints a, a couple minutes ago. Uh, uh, and, I didn't do this, but I almost said to my editor, you know, how about we have a little fold out and we have, even if it's just the hub, you know, the new control center. Because one of the first things I did, knowing that I was going to have many scenes set in the hub, or at least some important scenes set in the hub, I needed to figure out what this looked like for myself
1: before I could start Mm -hmm.
0: describing it to other people. And uh, at some point, I sat down in PowerPoint and created a blueprint for the core idea, uh, the, uh, the hub, and it was initially the core. And, um, so I know, I, you know, I, I, I know exactly where every station is, where every officer is. I know. So I actually through the course of writing it, I know some of the officers who man who crew those stations, um, during various shifts because I've had things take place and alpha, beta, Delta, gamma, gamma, Delta, uh, shift. So, um, you know, maybe that'll happen one day. Cause you know, I, I, I have blueprints <laughs> and of course I have some, some pretty cool drawings from, uh, from Doug Drexler and Andy Probert uh, uh, really um, pretty cool things on the way, you know, on the way to the star base that we ultimately got, you know, uh, graphically, but uh, you never know. I mean, Hopefully, the, the Deep Space Nine books will do well. We've, you know, with Una McCormick's missing, we went back to the Deep Space Nine name on Star Trek novels because prior to that, yeah. with Revelation Dust, it was the first book of the Fall series, and we Plagues of Night and and Raised the Dawn were under the Typhon Pact banner, as was um, Rough Beasts of Empire. So it's been a long time since we had actually had the the Star Trek Deep Space Nine title on novels, and um, they, you know we did that with The Missing. We've done that with Sacraments of Fire. It's going to happen with Ascendance, which is out um, end of December, and hopefully they'll, they'll do well, and so we can keep writing. And I'm interested in the books getting continuing to get published, even if I don't write them because I like reading them.
1: Yeah,
2: definitely. Well, I think t- I. Dan and I are both behind you, and that any time that they want to do the fold-out, we're there.
1: (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Yeah, the the hub for sure is something that I would really, really like to see, because uh, I mean, I I kind of have an idea in my head of of what it looks like from from what I've read, but uh, man, to see the actual layout of that would be really something special.
0: Hmm. Well... I'll, I'll have to. I'll have to see. I, I have no idea what the how cost prohibitive that might be or not. Uh, and I, like I said, I really did consider suggesting it, but I haven't yet. Maybe
2: I will. Well, I have to say too, uh, as you said, we need people to continue to buy the stories because it won't even matter uh, if they're not buying the stories. So keep buying the Deep Space Nine stories, so we can can get that stuff. They'll want to do that stuff. Well, I can't um, argue with so that. That would be great. Yeah. Um, well. Of course I would love to um hear about what's coming up next for you what are the things that uh people need to get from you um uh, you know any slight tidbits you want to tell us a, you know just kind of wet our appetite about what's coming in ascendance that we you know might well, not get into we are
0: I, I think ascendance is in part going in some sense exactly where you think it's going
1: mm-hmm. but
0: not entirely um Ascendance, um, I will tell you this. It has a, a different format, a uh, different structure than mm-hmm. Sacraments of Fire. And and okay. structure might not be something that readers are much interested in or even ever think about, but it, it's a different structure. And um, what else can I say about it that that uh, won't get me shot by my editor? Um <laughs> I feel like it's a, a very much a Star Trek story, but it's also a little bit weird. I, I don't know. I I, I really hope that people like it. I I, I you mentioned um, during the course of this conversation about this being a long, long game, uh, which is something I tweeted out today. Somebody, a reader, um, asked me a question uh, on Twitter, and um, one of the things I wrote back was that I've been playing a long game and. What I meant by that is that, um, really, we we talked about earlier, which is that there have been a lot of pieces out there, um, and I I tried to to sew them all together into a quilt that everybody will will like looking at. And um, some of these pieces are perhaps unexpected pieces. Um, I mean, it's really easy to see that, you know, when Ileana Gamore showed up in front of the ascendant at the end of the soul key and proclaimed, I am the fire, it's pretty pretty easy to figure that that's going to be a part of the Ascendants' story. However, there are other pieces that I'm guessing are not obvious. I'm thinking, I'm hoping are not obvious that are going to play into, into the story. Um, it'll be interesting to see... Um, how people uh, respond to it. I I hope they like it. I certainly enjoyed writing it. It was fun trying to figure it out. It was arduous trying to figure it out. Uh, And then when it sort of came to me, it was very fulfilling. And uh, I just hope I did the story justice. You know, here's something that's been interesting to me. In Revelation and Dust, I used an epigraph at the beginning of the novel. And what I did was I used... A snatch of poetry, I said, was written by a Kormoran, the Bajoran who came forward in time out of the wormhole and, and proclaimed himself the emissary. And Cisco stepped aside from him. This is in the TV mm-hmm. series. Yes. Um, and uh, I, 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 I wrote there in that epigraph that that a had written this bit of poetry, and it came from his book, *The Path to Ascendance*. A-S-C-E-N-D-A-N-C-E. So ascendance and not A-S-C-E-N-D-A-N-T-S. Not ascendance, the race. But still, I thought, this is so obvious. Everybody's going to know that (laughs) I'm setting up, you know, I'm getting ready to pay off the ascendance story when I I put the path to ascendance. Not one person wrote to me about that or or have I seen anybody comment on that until recently when somebody asked about, uh, when I guess when the, the title of the next book, Ascendance, was made known, uh, somebody said, somebody figured this must have to do with the Ascendance. And I, I said, yeah, but I'm surprised nobody caught it from the epigraph on the previous book. And people are like, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here I was thinking I was being too obvious.
2: That's awesome. That's great. I love that. Um it just re- it just shows you the the things that uh even the most ardent of fans that will miss. Um and uh I I love that.
0: I thought it was I like I said, I was desperately concerned I was being way too obvious and um plainly not obvious enough. which actually works <laughs> for me. Because now I don't know, maybe it'll be fun for some people. Well, seems like it's fun for you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, making things you know enigmatic and uh, kind of the the hints you were giving for the next book are certainly enigmatic. So that's that's really exciting. I, I like mystery and and your description of it being weird actually makes me really excited for it.
0: Well, I feel like it's weird. I, I you know <laughs> maybe it won't seem weird. I I feel like it's a little weird and very Star Trekky. But I'm not. I, hopefully, other people will think that as well. And when I say Star Trekky, um, Obviously, I'm, I'm meaning that in a very positive way. I mean, I think, like, you know, Dave Mack's brilliant Destiny trilogy is very Star Trekky in the sense that we didn't destroy our enemy, we freed our enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's the difference between, you know, um, just sort of a negative uh, uh, or brutal way of dealing with things and a positive, nurturing, constructive way of dealing with things, you know, um, I mean, go back to the original series. You know, Kirk may have wanted to kill some people sometimes, but then he didn't, and that's important. And uh, you know, it's a Star Trek ideal, I think. And and uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I I just think Ascendance is sort of Star Trek-y. I want it to be Star Trek-y. I wanted it to be so. Hopefully, it comes off that way. And uh, there's no. I, I'll tell you this. I can tell you this about Ascendance. There's no four-year time jump.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, That's so it, good
0: <laughs> It does largely pick off, pick up where we left off So, um, you know, it's going where it's going um, But it's, I, again, I think going also some places you might not expect
2: Well, besides uh, Ascendance coming out uh, What are the other things that you're working on Or, or things that uh, people kind of know about?
0: Well, I just actually signed a contract with Simon and Schuster to do uh, another, to do more Star Trek work. So
1: uh, right. that's
0: sort of in its nascent stages at the moment. Um, Excellent. <laughs> I have, I have a couple of ideas that I have been working on, um, and uh, you know, I don't know if this is going to happen or not. But as with the television series Deep Space Nine, in the books. As much as we tell complete stories in a novel, there are always little things here and there that, um, you know, ongoing things. I mean, throughout the entire run of D Space Nine, as we've talked about, Bajor was headed toward joining the Federation, and then it never did. We continued that in, in the books. Well, in the books, there have been other things that have happened. Um, you know, uh, um, there's, there's Vic who's uh vic fontaine who's sort of been missing in action since the destruction of the station and um has been missing in action so there are there are you know bits and pieces sandeska has had this terrible trauma um you know there, there, we've got the 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 pejorative false work we've got all of these things that are happening that um you know, there are elements of uh, that we're going to deal with moving, hopefully, people are going to deal with moving forward, me or uh, other writers. Um, I mean, in the very first books that came out for the Deep Sway Line relaunch, Kira posted the o- Ohalu texts and was attainted, was essentially excommunicated from the Bajoran faith. And, um, you know, that was not something that resolved itself in, in one novel. It was something that played out over, over time to allow the characters and the writers to explore what this meant. And, you know, that's what we're looking at. You know, it's Star Trek, so we're looking at ideas and ideals and uh, how society functions and how people function within it. It's, uh, it's what we do.
2: Well, where can everybody uh, find you online and, uh, you know, uh, interact with you as well, uh, especially if they want to—I've seen a lot of compliments so far about uh, Sacrifice of my, Fire myself, um, so yeah, tell everybody where they can find you.
0: Uh, well, certainly I'm on Facebook. I have a Facebook page, D-R-G-I-I-I, uh, and I'm on Twitter, David R. George, I-I-I, and um, I don't know if people use— LO very much. It's a new social media platform, but it has no advertising. Um, I'm on there, D-R-G-I-I-I, and uh, I'm probably going to be out with my own website fairly soon, but nothing to mention at the moment. But people can always find me online. Uh, There's also, Simon & Schuster has a page where... um,
2: Oh, yes, yeah.
0: Uh, I guess if you just go to Simon Schuster's website and search for David R. George III, you'll you'll find it. They have a page that it has all my my works on there. But it also, uh, I think there's a thing. I think it's called Authors Revealed, where Simon Schuster has asked me, and they do this for for many of their writers, where they ask them some questions, and the the, the writers' answers are there. And and also it it has my face, it has links to my Facebook and my Twitter and all that kind of stuff. So I'm fairly easy to find online if you're dedicated to finding me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, David, um, it is just been great to to have you uh, on the show, and I I love getting to hear the background. Uh, You know, for me, Deep Space Nine being my favorite, it's always awesome to kind of hear the background information from the authors and what they were thinking when they were writing things, especially when you were talking about how you were deciding where to go with Cisco and all that. Just fascinating stuff, so... I appreciate so much that you continue to uh, give us the time here on Literate Treks. It really does mean a lot.
0: Well, I certainly appreciate the invitation and I'll let you allowing me to uh, to talk about it. You know, I like you, I'm a fan, So, uh, and I'm a reader. Uh, apart from writing these, I like to read them. And um, the characters and, and Star Trek in general are just important to me. And, you know, we all work very hard at this, and it's important uh, to us that uh, the— uh, that you know we're we're carrying the torch forward and uh, hopefully people feel that we're doing that well
1: the the love definitely shows through so thank you very much for taking the time to uh to talk with us today well matthew i always love it when we get a chance to talk to the authors and uh as you know deep space nine is one of my absolute favorite series so it was definitely a thrill to be able to talk to david r george about uh, acts of sacri- sacrifice
2: Man, uh, this was great. David gave us so much background information on the thought process behind writing this. And, you know, there was so much material for him to cover. I don't envy (laughs) him his position of, like we said, trying to stitch all of this together and make it work.
1: Definitely. It's a, well, it's a hefty book and there was definitely a lot to talk about there. Uh, So, you know, we could have talked for hours more about this. I can't imagine how long it must have taken to write that book. Uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, let alone <laughs> let alone talking about it. It's uh, it's amazing the amount of uh, just really interesting directions we could have gone in that discussion.
2: Well, it is amazing what these authors are, are able to do, and especially with what David was having to do here of um, take all these story threads that— um, had been bypassed at this point and try and find a way to make it all work with what's happening now. And, um, I think that I can't really judge this book until we get ascendance because I think they're going to be so much together. Um, and I can't wait for ascendants to come out and kind of see where we're going to go. And as David said, it's going to be weird.
1: <laughs> Star Trek. It's going to be weird. I kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it isn't it Janeway who said weird is our business.
1: Right. Yeah, it was uh, um, we're Starfleet officers, Mr. Kim. Weird is part of the job. <laughs>
2: That's right. So well, weird isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM the past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things that have been happening around Trek FM.
1: Previously
0: on Trek.fm standard orbit. <laughs>
1: It wasn't so much, you know, some down and dirty action, you know, and stuff. It's more like, Spock is in heaven and it's all good until he comes back, you know, that kind of stuff. I think that's pretty, Though I think those are the lyrics. Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice. you guys know which side of the ship you're on? The orb. Also, the original title of this episode was A Matter of Breeding, which when we talk about things feeling TNG-ish, that could have been a Riker episode. (laughs) (laughs) The Ready Room. It's about people and feelings and emotions. It's about philosophy. It's about the future. It's about hope. It's about glory. It's about intellectual
0: promise. That's what Axnar is about. It is not a story about pew, pew, pew. I promise you that. To the journey! I can just hear the Earl Grey people screaming, measure of a man, measure of a man.
2: (laughs) And you know what I
1: would say to that? Death wish, death wish. Warp 5. I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school and I remember revisiting it now in full and I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. I think part of it, you know, which is probably good, is that he's Probably not familiar with what happened, you know, in in season one of Next Gen, aside from hearing stories here and there. So he's just like, whatever. I'm just going to get the story. The Six O Two Club. I think he's very much recreating that THX feel, and you may you may disagree with it. You may not think it's you know it's great, but it's on purpose. He He wants that world to be that way. Let me just say, conceptually, I agree with that. In terms of execution, that's where I think he failed. Literary Treks.
2: It's amazing to me, as I reread these stories, how much of it I just kind of think of as Deep Space Nine these days, even though it wasn't part of Deep Space Nine, (laughs) you know, the the actual series.
0: Axonar, the official podcast.
1: It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969, that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back in my opinion.
0: Women at Warp. My absolute favorite thing about this episode is that this is a love potion only if it's between a
1: man and a woman. They make it explicitly clear that if you touch two men or two women, they just become really good friends. And
0: that's what else is happening on Trek.FM. Guys,
2: check out these shows. Uh, Find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and, of course, beyond And you know you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, uh, in Apple, there's a few things you can do that really help us out, hitting the subscribe button or giving us star ratings and reviews. Those are some things that really help us move up in the iTunes rankings and and make us more visible so more Star Trek fans can find out about the books and the comics that we talk about. And, of course, if you are not an Apple user, you can find us on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And, of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website, and grab the RSS link there as well. And then I think the most important thing really is, is helping us out on Patreon. It, it does cost a lot for us to be able to bring all of this content to you each week, from literary treks all the way to the other shows that we do in the network, the hosting, everything that we do uh, with the website, um, the programs that we use, all this stuff. It it does cost us a lot. And so you can visit Patreon. Dot com slash trekfm, And you can help us and be part of our team. Um, there are some goals that we'd like to reach and some milestone contribution levels that we've got for you that, that come with some great perks. Uh, exclusive content. Uh, producer credit seats in the content development team. You could be a part of the Patreon roundtables that we've been doing that Will Wynn has been heading up. Uh, we appreciate your support, guys. Uh, we know that you have plenty of things that you can support, and the fact that you would help us out means the world to us. So you'll find all the details again at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you have any comments, you'd like to share what you thought about Sacraments of Fire, we'd love to hear from you at trek.fm slash contact. You could leave us a voicemail. Look on the sidebar on the show page. Go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. Uh, Twitter at trek.fm, a great place to interact with us. And, and of course, too, uh, retweet the shows and retweet the stuff that we do. Uh, Help spread the word about our shows here. That really helps us out. I would uh, encourage you to do that especially at facebook.com slash trek fm that's a great way as well on your facebook page to share the shows that we share there uh, let other people know in your life hey you need to check out literary treks or the orb or 602 club standard orbit commentary trek stars i mean all of these things that we bring to you each week of course we've got the babel conference and you know what that is that's the listeners only discussion group and i know that both dan and i and really love getting to talk to each one of you uh, about the episodes each week and all the things that get mentioned in there. Just type Babel in the search field of Facebook, or you can go to the website track.fm and click Discussion on the menu bar. And then the Goodreads group. Check us out on Goodreads. Um, We've got the bookshelves with the previously covered books as well as our currently reading section. So you know what's coming up in future shows. Plus some great conversations going on about the books and the comics. Also love to thank our associate producers, Will Wynn and Ken Tripp. Without these guys, these shows could not be brought to you. I really appreciate their support through Patreon and bringing this show to you each week through that, and the fact that they've chosen Literary Treks is their place to support as associate producers. Now, Dan, when you're not uh, parasol gliding with uh, Prin over the wonderful new Nanbaco Park there, in Deep Space Nine, where can we find you?
1: Uh, well, Matthew, you can find me online. I'm at uh, www.treklitreviews.com, and there I do reviews of Star Trek novels, both old and new, uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Reviews and on Facebook, at facebook.com slash Reviews, uh, And also, of course, I'm kicking around the Babel Conference, talking about Star Trek books and other topics. And you stole mine. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I just it. thought of it, too. I was what? like, oh, that's a perfect... Oh, the, you, like- I
2: know how you like your print, so I figured <gasps> you, you should... Get that
1: joy. It was like word for word coming out of your mouth. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and Matthew, when you're not trying to figure out ways to cover your tracks about how you helped Julian Bashir escape custody, uh, where can we find you? Well, you know I'd help him
2: escape. I mean, that guy and I, we're like brothers. <laughs> uh, man, well, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at m rushing you can also find me doing the orb with christopher jones we talk only about deep space nine so if you like deep space nine and you enjoy the conversation we had today you need to check that out if you don't like deep space nine let chris and i talk you into it there on the orb uh, you can also find me on the 602 club we talk about all things geeky um, each week we pick a new topic and talk about that and it's a great way to find out about some things you might not Uh, know about Um, find out some things you do know about but you haven't tried yet Uh, we've talked about uh, Star Wars recently we're always talking about Star Wars somehow Uh, we've talked about the new Terminator film we've got some great things coming up like Ant-Man and and getting into some of the um, Daniel Craig Bond soon so uh, we've got some amazing things coming each week for you in the 602 club and then there's my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.